Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health. I'm Elizabeth Cullen. And I'm Georgia Fong. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. Hello and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 5. Today we have a very knowledgeable guest, Dr. Amani Harris. Dr. Amani Harris is an advanced laparoscopic and robotic gynecological surgeon, obstetrician and fertility specialist based in Sydney, Australia. She completed a two-year Australasian Gynecological Endoscopy and Surgery Society Fellowship in Minimally Invasive Surgery at Monash, Melbourne, in addition to a one-year fellowship at the Sydney West Advanced Pelvic Surgery Unit. She obtained a Master's of Advanced Gynecological Surgery from the University of Western Sydney and a Master of Reproductive Medicine from the University of New South Wales. Dr. Harris's passion for improving access for all women to minimally invasive surgery and love for surgical teaching led her to create her own minimally invasive unit, of which she is now the Director of Training for the Sydney Minimally Invasive Gynecological Surgery Unit. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, review and share. Enjoy. All information in the podcast Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health is for educational purposes only and was relevant at the time of recording. We recommend for any individual symptoms, personalised diagnosis and treatment to see a registered health practitioner. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Right, so welcome back to our Integrating Chinese Medicine podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Amani Harris. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Harris. It's my pleasure, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, let's get started as we're chatting all about endometriosis today and adenomyosis. So let's start with our first question with regards to fertility and endometriosis. Does endometriosis affect egg quality, Dr. Harris? Yes. Um, so there's recent data that shows um, that endometriosis can affect the quality of an egg. Um, often we've thought we've known for a long time that it can affect the number of eggs, especially when it's with the ovary. But recently there's been data to show, in fact, even endometriosis outside the ovary can have a negative impact on the egg. There's no test for egg quantity as such. So all this data we've we've received through looking at eggs um, obtained from uh, patients going through a cycle of IVF and what the okay. scientists see under the microscope. And what we saw was that eggs often um, take longer to respond to hormone cycles. There's a higher chance of um, eggs with slightly more more defects in them so the appearance is changed uh, their response to hormones is changed and um, just the cell cycle itself so the function of the egg is unfortunately lower in women with endometriosis even when it doesn't affect the ovary wow, wow. Mm. so 
The diagnosis of endometriosis, it definitely is a factor that a couple, a couple need to consider with the timing of trying to conceive naturally. Yeah, so normally most people would advise, so most GPs would say, see a fertility specialist if you're trying to conceive after, if you're trying to fall pregnant and it hasn't happened after 12 months. Mm -hmm. My advice would be if you know you have endometriosis or have a history of endometriosis, to be a bit more conservative about that and seek um, a specialist review at six months if if you haven't fallen pregnant, Um, especially for women over the age of 35. Mm -hmm. uh, It doesn't mean that everyone with endometriosis will have trouble conceiving because in fact most people don't um, but for those uh, that when it hasn't happened in six months just come in for an assessment you know and, and that's to exclude things um, related to sperm health so to make sure there's nothing abnormal and not just assuming that it's the endometriosis um, so just making an assessment for the couple's fertility um, and for the egg reserve if they're not in um, if the couple's not in a, a heterosexual relationship um, then making that assessment and making sure um, that everything's okay and discussing options uh, yeah, moving right. forward yeah yeah fantastic And so often we hear that a specialist may say to a couple um, that pregnancy is a cure for endometriosis. Now, (laughs) true, Marnie, and (laughs) how can patients navigate this question? Yeah, it's... um... It's a myth that's been circulating around, gosh, I think for centuries, really, and it baffles me that it still still happens today. And it's often from well-meaning, you know, friends or family members or even health professionals sometimes. Um, No, there's no truth to it whatsoever. Um, I think it's, you know, we should never say that a solution to something that Mm -hmm. is medical, that is really actually a chronic disease like diabetes, is to have a child. I think the decision to bring a little human into this world should be based on definitely not endometriosis. And and it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't help. There's no cure for endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think how can you approach this? I think the onus is not on the women. I think we as a society need to do better. So we need to stop telling women to, to go and have a baby. Um, yeah. And I think the fact that that still happens means, you know, we've all got a better job to do and more work in this sphere for education and awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, we should, um, you know, just be mindful because sometimes patients you know, are not ready um, because they're focusing on their career, they're not in a relationship, their partner's not ready, or they have been trying and, um, you know, asking those questions or making those comments just uh, makes them feel hopeless and frustrated and and just, yeah, not not a positive thing. No. 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 And putting the onus on us as part of the society of making people more aware is such an important Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always like with fertility in general. I mean, people get married and the first question everybody asks is, when are you having a baby or, you know? Yeah, we really do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they they may have been trying for for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when it comes to fertility, just let it be. (laughs) It's such a personal thing and people will share with you whatever they wish to share. But um, I think just be mindful that, the person on the receiving end um, may actually have a lot going on in that in that sphere. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Yeah. 
So if a woman has been diagnosed with endometriosis prior to conception, is there a preference for vaginal or cesarean birth? So the short answer is no. Uh, most, pe most people with endometriosis go on to have a, you know, uncomplicated pregnancy and end up having a vaginal birth if they choose that. Um, so that's reassuring. Um, there is, however, certain unique risks associated with endometriosis um, that are negative in pregnancy, unfortunately. So one of them is a higher chance of miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy, um, but also a group of medical conditions unique to that population. So for some reason, they have a higher chance of preeclampsia, the blood pressure condition mm. unique to pregnancy, and a higher chance of um, placenta previa, which is a low-lying okay. placenta. And yeah. that increases, that almost doubles the chances of needing a cesarean. So we know women with a history of endo do have almost double the chance of requiring a cesarean section. They don't have to, but medically there might be more um, reasons uh, that might force them down that path. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr Harris, are they undertaking some research to find out why there's a higher risk of preeclampsia and placenta previa? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot to, to unfold with preeclampsia, but we know it's we know it's to do, it occurs, you know, early on um, when the implantation happens at the beginning of pregnancy. Okay. And we think that that's a vascular problem. It's an inflammatory problem. Um, so, and, and together with endometriosis, it causes abnormalities in the early implantation. We don't know exactly what and why. Um, yeah. And placenta previa probably has a similar, similar, similar reasoning why. I mean, we don't know why it happens to begin with, but it probably is part to do with um, the underlying causes of endometriosis or um, abnormal motility is one of them too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, how can pregnancy affect endometriosis? And does pain have a tendency to return once the period comes back? Um. So. Pregnancy is a really hormonal environment and, in fact, most of the hormones, um, hormonally uh, dominant um, uh, hormones at that time are actually what we try to do with the pills. So it's very high progesterone levels and we give progesterone to women with pain with a history of endometriosis to regulate their pain. So often the disease or the pain gets better in pregnancy because of that hormonal environment, but also because um, women stop having menstrual cycles as well. And the menstrual cycles, um, I mean, the, the oldest theory about endometriosis is it's retrograde. We know that's not completely true and it's not the only theory, but when cycles do stop, often people get alleviation of their pain. So for most people, it improves. Um, there is a small proportion of women where the pain gets worse because of the pressure on the pelvis. Um, yeah, and for most everybody, um, re really the pain looks different on everyone as it is with endometriosis. I mean, endo in itself looks different on everybody and it's so enigmatic. So for some, for most people, the pain comes back once their cycles return after if they chose to breastfeed and once that stops. Um, for others, uh, it may even get worse. So uh, pregnancy in itself is a risk factor for adenomyosis uh, because you then have the placenta that's implanted and coming off 
and then it's a really trigger and they may experience it for the first time um, after having a baby they may say my periods are a lot heavier with lots of cramping so new symptoms of adenomyosis which can occur after after having a baby okay yeah okay and so dr harris we know it takes on average six and a half years to be diagnosed with endometriosis through awareness have you found this is now taking less time yes i'm it's a it's one really good um positive thing i think that um i'm certainly finding a lot of people are having the conversation with each other patients themselves are self-referring or they're approaching their healthcare professional or gp and saying i think i might have endometriosis or do you think i might so we're talking about it a lot more which is fantastic um i do think sometimes yeah but sometimes there's still uh, i think we're thinking about it and i still see cases where um women have been to ed multiple times with pain They've said, yeah, we think you might have endometriosis. The pain's related to that. They've seen a chronic pain specialists and on, are on really heavy pain medication. They've seen a gastroenterologist and they've had gastroscopies and colonoscopies. And yet they haven't really. And the first, when I say, I think you might need a laparoscopy for surgery, they think, oh, yes, you know, why has no one sort of told me about this for the last six or seven years? So mm-hmm. I still see those cases and, and I think... Um, you know, endometriosis surgery is not for everybody. And, um, you know, we just need to to make sure we improve on that pathway of management. Yeah, most definitely. Amazing. Yeah. So what are the symptoms patients should look out for other than menstrual pain when considering that they may have endometriosis? Um, so it's it's really as I as I mentioned, it's so enigmatic and it's so different. But it's not always um, painful periods. Pain can occur outside the period. It can occur in the week leading up to the period, in um, ovulation time. Pain with intercourse. Sometimes pain with opening bowel um, or pain passing urine. Um, And non-pain symptoms include abnormal bleeding, so heavy bleeding, passing clots, um, spotting before a a period is due, bleeding while urinating or bleeding in the poo, that's quite abnormal. Um, Symptoms of overall inflammation, like I think the core thing about endometriosis is it's an all-body inflammatory disease. So people can present, you know, with feeling really tired, with bloating, um, just nauseous, uh, mood changes, low mood. Um, So I think they're they're the really important things um, to to recognise that it's not always just painful periods. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And what are the top three most important questions a patient can ask ask their gynecologist with regards to their endometriosis and management? Um, I think one thing I always say is um, uh, make sure you are seeing an endometriosis specialist. So that is and uh, really a unique field within gynecology, and it's important to ask that question always to your specialist or do some research, background research. Um, I'm sure patients ask you too <laughs> when they see you. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, it is a, a unique specialty and a lot of us dedicate a lot of time and energy into, you know, that 
into educating ourselves and ongoing training. And um, so it's important to, to realise who you're seeing and what to expect from that. Um, after you've had a full assessment and, you know, you've discussed the symptoms and most likely had an uh, examination, the first thing I would ask is, um, you know, what do you think is the cause of my symptoms? Do you think it's okay. endometriosis? Is there something else going on? And how do we come to that diagnosis? So mm -hmm. how do we rule out other things? What's the next step? That's, yeah. um, I think, really important. Uh, secondly, what are the treatment options? So talk about the risks and benefits of each option. Okay. And also if they do find, if they're planning surgery and they do find endometriosis, do they plan or will they excise it all? Um, and lastly, um, what, what happens or where to, what's plan B if the treatment doesn't work? Yeah. Okay. There's yeah. some really practical questions, Amani. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's crucial. And sometimes, you know, you might not get through all of it depending on the complexity of a situation, um, but always arrange follow-up um, appointments and, and make sure you discuss all of these points. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And so do you think there will ever be a day that diagnosis will be through a blood test? So say, for example, testing cancer antigen 125. I hope so. I think last time I checked, there was about 140 different uh, published papers and 122 blood tests that were being investigated for uniquely for diagnosing endometriosis. Mm -hmm. um, CA125 is one of four that has really good evidence um, and is most most commonly used so as you know it's a protein that is a, a cancer marker for gynecological cancers but it's not only elevated in cancer so it, it can actually be high at the time of menstruation if there's any other inflammation in the body um, so if someone has symptoms suggestive of endometriosis and their ca125 is a little bit high uh, it's really good probability that it is accurate enough to, to diagnose endometriosis. Yeah. But the, the converse is not always true. So if the CA125 comes back um, normal, it doesn't exclude endometriosis. So the okay. utility of the, of the test is a little bit um, not very general. Yeah, yeah. okay. Such. What are the other tests that they're looking at at the moment? Uh, I think one of them is an interleukin and another one is an antibody. So all of these inflammatory sort of um, blood tests and CA 19.9. Uh, so that's another tumour marker, um, but for bowel. Uh, but they don't have strong evidence as much as CA 125. Okay. 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 We'll and certainly CA 125 is, yeah, um, is always used with endometriomas, so the cysts on the ovaries, mm -hmm. um, because, because it's um, a, a tumour marker for ovarian cancers, then mm -hmm. it's reassuring. It will be a bit high, but not really elevated, such as with cancer. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Harris, we wanted to ask you a few questions about laparoscopic surgery. So sure. So, we wanted to ask how you became an advanced laparoscopic surgeon. Um, thank you for that question. Um, <laughs> I, um, uh, I discovered pretty early on in my specialty training, I always wanted to be actually a cardiothoracic surgeon. I always oh, yeah. knew I wanted to be a surgeon. 
Okay. Yeah. And then I and then I was inspired by uh, during medical school um, at my team at PA when I saw them doing this amazing surgery and I thought, oh, this is great. Um, and it's all to do with women's health. And that really, I think, just struck a chord with me. And I wanted to, mm-hmm. to um, I wanted to be able to offer women the benefits of minimally invasive surgery and doing my specialty training. I, I knew I wanted to achieve the highest degree of training to be able to do that well. Um, right. So I uh, sought out, it's a six-year training for general obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, So I would always choose rotations that were known to have to be surgically heavy for that reason um, during training. Um, And then I also did an extra training on top of that. So after finishing specialty training, I did um, an extra year at uh, a gynaecological fellowship at Sydney West advanced swaps it's called so it's a laparoscopic unit and then two years um, of an ages what we call ages accredited laparoscopic training Um, so that's the the highest um, the governing body in Australia for training uh, in advanced laparoscopy so I did that in Monash Health in Melbourne for two years which was some of the best time of my life (laughs) social Melbourne (laughs) Um, yeah yeah. yeah, so I just pursued extra training. It's taken yeah. years on top of specialty training to specialise in surgery alone. And, and Monash, I was always passionate about endometriosis and, and Monash has a uniquely strong endometriosis base. Amazing. So inspiring, Dr Harris. Yeah. Oh, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love what I do. So yeah. it's, you know, it's just... For me, it's fun and great. I'm sure you feel the same way about what you yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. You feel so lucky yeah. to do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you feel yeah. lucky to to be with people during that time and for them to choose you as the person to look after them. Most 100%. definitely. It's an honour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Dr Harris, can you please explain the two types of laparoscopy being excision, excision treatment sorry, and ablation and which do you prefer and find more effective? Okay, so ablation is um, destroying implants by using heat. So instruments at laparoscopy that um, transfer heat usually by electricity and Mm -hmm. it burns the top off but it doesn't really um, remove the deeper layers. Uh, So excision, on the other hand, is uh, removal and cutting out of the entire lesion Um, through all its depth and there's different types of endometriosis some are quite deep and thick nodules Mm -hmm. so excision would be removing all of that until you get to normal tissue so they're quite different Um, yeah yeah, a common analogy is uh, if you've got weeds in the garden and ablation would be just removing the top off so it might make the lawn you know look better for yeah, a little yeah. bit of time, but it's going to come back. And yeah. I think that summarises my thoughts on ablation versus excision. Exactly. So my preference, and I would always excise um, because there's good evidence that there's less chance of the disease coming back because you mm-hmm. haven't left too much behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and also endometriosis always implants on uh, really tricky spots, like on you know major big vessels, bowel, um, organs and anatomy in the pelvis that you don't want to destroy and heat can destroy that by just burning it off. So you want to remove that, um, you know, with precision and 
and not destroying the underlying structures. So you can only do that with excision. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Really interesting. So really you need to get the roots of the weeds as well. Through exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that it doesn't just pop up again, which will happen with ablation. Sometimes if the if the lesion is exceptionally uh, superficial and small, ablating it destroys everything. And But you can see that. So I guess in that instance, um, even then I, I like to excise it. Um, but also because when you cut it out, you send it off to pathology and that confirms that it's endometriosis. Okay. But when you burn, you don't have a specimen to send off to pathology. Okay. 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 And with excision, is there less scar tissue than the ablation? There's, there's no real studies on this um, because that would involve, you know, multiple laparoscopies, but potentially yes. Um, but scarring can also happen uh, after excision because you've now got a raw surface. So um, things can always stick to raw surfaces. Yeah, okay. 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 And how long after a laparoscopic surgery can a couple start actively trying to conceive? Really, it depends on the surgery they've had. So yeah. if it's just a laparoscopy day procedure um, that hasn't been too complicated, um, mm. then I would really say when they feel up to it. So when the patient has recovered from surgery, which might be usually about a week, they mm. might want to wait for the first menstrual cycle because that just allows for a new lining of the uterus if a biopsy has been um, taken. But if they've had some of the more complex surgery like some of our combined bowel cases might take four hours, five hours. Sometimes patients have a bowel resection or, um, you know, that's going to take a little bit longer to recover from. But once they've recovered, there, there shouldn't be any delay. The first, I told them to try for six months after surgery um, because you want, you know, before the disease comes back and it can come back. Yeah, most definitely. Great. And how quickly can endometriosis grow back after having it removed? Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> that was good timing. <laughs> um, so how can yeah. grow back? I guess you said six months. Um, I'd be interested yeah. about the difference as well of excision and ablation. Surgery. Yeah. Um, so we know up to 40% will come back within five years. So it's usually in the first few years. And that also depends on uh, if someone's been on Put on hormonal therapy after yeah, yeah, their okay. surgery or not okay. because that decreases the chances so the pill yeah. the mirena um if they've had definitive surgery so if they've had a hysterectomy um and whether or not they've kept their ovaries uh, so um as long as there's ovaries even after a hysterectomy that's why the theory that endo is just the blood um coming back out through the tubes doesn't fit in with the fact that people get recurrence of endo even after having the whole uterus out um, okay. so yeah, so as long as there's ovaries, it can come back. Mm -hmm. um, there's no studies really looking at the recurrence um, of, oh, sorry, there is uh, looking at recurrence of endo more likely with ablation um, mm -hmm. rather than excision. Okay. Yeah. And so if someone's been, say, for example, diagnosed with grade one endometriosis to grade four. Um, yeah with the frequency of it growing back when you were saying about the 40% in five years, is that also different depending on the grade that you were diagnosed with? Yeah. Interesting. Um, so 
we actually did a big study in um, Monash on our own patients, uh, which was a big a big group, and we did find that more severe disease tends to have a higher chance of recurrence. Um, So stage three or four rather than stage one to two. Um, But again, that's sometimes it's really difficult to know because sometimes pain comes back when the disease is not back. And that's related to other things like the pelvic floor, whether Mm -hmm. or not they've now developed adenomyosis, um, which is a new pain issue. And a lot of people don't have surgery again. They might have scans, but that's, as we know, won't show the endometriosis. Um, So it's hard to know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And Dr. Harris, you touched on this a little bit before, but what are the risks of scarring or adhesions from an ablation or from excision treatment with laparoscopic surgery and does this affect how regularly a patient can have laparoscopies sure um so adhesions are abnormal connections or bands of connections between two body surfaces that should not be connected Um, and it's really the body's uh, attempt at repairing itself it's actually very common to have adhesions. I think a lot of people don't realise this. Any abdominal surgery, so big open cuts, um, about 90% chance of having an adhesion if someone's had a big open cut on their belly. Um, yeah, so we like laparoscopy because it's minimally invasive and it reduces the risk of adhesions. So for laparoscopy, it's lower, but it's still pretty high, a 70% chance um, of adhesion formation. But it, what that... but for usually after laparoscopy, it's more likely to be thin tissue. The problem and the risk is for patients that develop adhesions that involve organs like the bowel, which can happen. So, and that's what poses risks in subsequent um, surgery um, mm-hmm. because, and, and the highest risk at the time of surgery is actually putting the camera in at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, so because it can, uh, you know, even if you're looking, you can miss that there's bowel right underneath and the injury can occur then. Um, Up to about 50% of cases of injury of laparoscopy occur when the telescope is being put in. So um, we've moved on from... People in the past used to have, you know, a lapar- they used to schedule their laparoscopies for endometriosis on a yearly basis. So yeah. we really try, <laughs> we, yeah, so often people be like, oh, I'm due for my yearly laparoscopy. And yeah. we've had patients, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we've had patients that have had 20 or 30 laparoscopies. It's just, and they're only, they're still menstruating. So they're only in their 30s. Yeah, yeah. it's so we really try not to do that, um, and uh, that's because it increases their risk. The more surgery someone has, the more adhesions, the more potential complications. How long ago was that type of treatment protocol? Yeah, in my in my um, in my training, I've definitely yeah, seen yeah. it. So in Monash, we've you know we've had patients that, um, and I think they they've just gotten used to that's what they've had for so yeah. long that it's really yeah. hard to then say, actually, I don't think that's right for you. Yeah. 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 But I'm glad. I think it's changing. We're definitely changing our approach and we're developing. uh, There's so much work from Endometriosis Australia and a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, my colleagues that interchanging the guidelines and how we manage endometriosis and definitely repeat surgery. Many surgeries is not the way to go. Most definitely. And yeah. with the pelvic clinics opening as well, that's going to make such exactly. a Exactly. 
Yeah, absolutely. The centres of excellence, um, hopefully that will be um, happening, I hope, in the next few years. So that's where, you know, yeah, where people will get, um, I think there was not so much a focus on it being a whole body disease and Mm -hmm. the fact that it needs to be a multidisciplinary team. Um, You know, surgery is not going to fix it all. And um, we need, you know, your services, we need the acupuncture, we need the nutrition advice and dietary changes, um, the pelvic floor physiotherapy, and that's all, you know, meditation, yoga, all those things are super important. Yeah, yeah, because it's not just about the treatment, but also the patient's quality of life as well. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, most definitely. Okay. And Dr. Harris, are there any other forms of prevention of regrowth? Um, so hormonal treatment. Uh, so if someone's, as long as they've kept their uterus in and their ovaries are still in, then there's a higher chance of regrowth. So I always counsel people about potentially having a Mirena inserted. And obviously that depends on where they are in their fertility journey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Mirena, the pill, um, or even Bazan. Uh, so that's the um, new type of progesterone that was uh, specifically designed for endometriosis because of its yeah. anti-estrogen effect. So that works mm-hmm. well. Um, there's really good, there's a new exciting progesterone-only pill called Slinda um, that's been very effective. I, I think it's only been around in Australia for the last six months or so maybe a year um so for patients that can't take estrogen or get Mm. migraines or have uh, you know this should be just as good Um, so i think hormonal for the recurrence of the disease but then they you know we need to work on all the other aspects because pain doesn't always come back when Mm. there's only endometriosis pain can exist even with no endometriosis and we know that because there's a proportion of people that will still have pain after we've removed all the endo so we need to work on that yeah and have that support team of like pelvic exactly specialist acupuncturist yeah Yeah. amazing yeah yeah so was it slinda Yes, progesterone pill was yes have the same amount of progesterone as the marine or the marina or marina. No, so marina is really low dose of progesterone in the blood. Mm-hmm. It works mainly locally, um, yeah. so and that's why a lot of people like it for that reason, and that's why it works really well for the adenomyosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the progesterone is delivered into the uterus. It doesn't actually suppress ovulation. Okay. Uh, it works as a contraceptive. So it's the ovaries are still working the hormones are pretty much um, the same but the lining of the uterus doesn't form and the mucus is thickened and that's how it works as a contraceptive Um, whereas slinda is like all the other pills so it stops Mm -hmm. ovulation ovulation. okay 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 and so what is your opinion on the kylina I use Kylina a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I really like Kylina. I think it's it was designed for and works really well for young women wanting a reliable method of contraception, mm-hmm. um, especially if they've not um, had children before. So mm-hmm. it's slightly smaller and has lower dose hormone compared with the Mirena. So it should yeah. be easier to insert, not as traumatic, and they tend to get less pain or less crampy mm-hmm. pain after. But it hasn't really been studied in the endometriosis population like okay. Mirena has, and okay. it's also not appropriate for people that have really heavy bleeding. Okay, interesting. Okay. And why is it not appropriate for people with heavy bleeding? Is that because it's got less hormones? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, 
Okay. So it doesn't tend to work as well. As well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, Dr. Harris, you mentioned lifestyle factors, including diet, exercise, movement, meditation to help reduce endo pain. Is there anything else specific that you would like the listeners to know if they're experiencing endo pain? Yes, I think I think um, it's a real trial and error. And I think speaking to people and seeing there's lots of endometriosis support groups and I think they do a wonderful job. Um, so seeing what works for other people, but also really I think it's all about being in tune with one's own body. Um, and that's the importance and taking ownership and educating yourself on what and how things will affect you. So, you know, diet, for example, if, you know, you will soon recognise um, what foods might cause a flare-up. And it doesn't mean that you can never consume them. It just means, you know, if I eat um, this particular thing, um, then I might get crampy. And, you know, I think that gives you power over yourself because it gives you control over your body and knowledge about your body. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the mind is really important and in all things pain related. So that's why meditation is really important. Um, you know, stretching exercises, yoga, they are, and they're all evidence-based. There's evidence yeah. to show that they are really helpful. Um, I think sometimes people might think, oh, are you saying it's all in my head? It's not that. It's actually, you know, pain is unique and pain is a perception and you know nerve pathways are a really wonderful thing and sometimes even after you know all the disease is removed the nerve pathways continue to tell your back brain that you have pain um so i think getting the power and ownership over that um is really helpful and it does help and some people um really find really good benefits from all of it amazing it's amazing yeah being able to understand the pain and the triggers makes such a difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now, Dr. Harris, we'd love to pick your brain about endometriosis, evil sister, adamiosis. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is adamiosis and what are the symptoms? Yeah. It's really evil. <laughs> it's one, and I, and everywhere I go, I see it. You know, I seem to diagnose it a fair bit. Um, so it's it's the similar pathways we think of endometriosis in that it's the tissue like the lining of the uterus, the endometrium, that's mm -hmm. deposited in the muscle of the uterus. So it's not gone outside like endometriosis in the pelvis. It's mm -hmm. in the muscle and it follows the same hormonal pathways that the endometrium or endometriosis will. So it reacts to hormones and you actually get, you know, little bleeds and shedding as you do when you menstruate inside the muscle and the muscle then thickens and becomes really heavy and big. Mm -hmm. And these islands of, of bleeding also produce, you know, bleeding produces iron and that's uh, you know an oxidative stress and that causes inflammation and that's part of how it all works so um people with uh, adenomyosis often describe feeling really heavy in their pelvis because the uterus is a lot heavier um, it's full of old blood and it's full of inflammation and the muscle is thicker so they will describe you know lower back pain pain with intercourse heavy bleeding passing clots contraction type pain that is literally like labor um so yeah 
Okay. And so what are the pain option, uh, pain management options for a woman that has adamiosis? Um, so the non-hormonal options include really non-steroidal anti-inflammatories because it works well because it's an inflammatory condition. Okay. So it's things like nurofen. Ponstan works well because it also helps reduce the heavy bleeding. So it depends on which element is worse. Some people, for some, it's the bloating. They look, you know, four months pregnant when they're about to have a period and that's related to the adenomyosis. For others, it's the heavy bleeding. Um, so there's medication like tranexamic acid, which is also non-hormonal that reduces mm -hmm. heavy bleeding. Um, so that's that's important. Um, uh, also physiotherapy and all, all the other things. Again, diet is really important. The same treatment options for endometriosis also okay. work well for adenomyosis. Um, and then surgery. So, and that really depends on someone's fertility um, needs. So the ultimate treatment for adenomyosis is removing the uterus. Um, but obviously not appropriate for someone who's, you know, young. And I've seen it in 17-year-olds that have never been sexually mm -hmm. active. You know, you see it in, in young people. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not many surgical options unlike endo uh, for adenomyosis because you can't go scooping around in the muscle and taking out bits. Um, mm. It's diffuse most of the time. There are some that are aggregated and you get an adenomyoma, but mostly it's diffuse. So you'd cause way too much trauma. Um, there's options like ultrasound directed therapy and um, radiological interventions like uterine artery embolization, but their use in people wanting to fall pregnant hasn't really been established and they've got their own complications. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, not many options from a surgery. Yeah. And then there's the hormones. Um, so yeah. like the Mirena and the pill. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so just to jump back to the surgery option, is it more of a partial hysterectomy of keeping the ovaries or so partial partial hysterectomy refers to keeping the cervix which oh, we don't tend okay. to do anymore yeah so it's a total yeah total hysterectomy when we're removing the uterus and the cervix but we almost i mean i've don't think I've ever removed ovaries for something like adenomyosis and pain okay. um because it used to be more common, um, okay. but, yeah, um, because I think that has its own morbidity. So the hormones from the ovaries, especially in someone, you know, younger in their 40s that hasn't mm. gone through menopause, um, protects them from osteoporosis, heart disease and stroke, yeah. and you literally shorten someone's life removing normal ovaries. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, in terms of length of diagnosis, is it as long as endometriosis? Do you usually find that a patient will be diagnosed with endometriosis before adenomyosis? Yes. So um, there's still a lot of what I call adenomyosis deniers, even in the medical community. Okay. Um, because so historically adenomyosis and even now, really, the only way you could make an accurate diagnosis is a uterus that's gone to the pathologist and they dissect it in the lab and they tell you that it's adenomyotic. Oh, okay. There's lots of, yeah, so there's um, lots of studies into how it can be diagnosed on ultrasound. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, I find that it's missed a fair bit. Mm -hmm. um, at laparoscopy or hysteroscopy, the camera inside the cavity of the uterus, you can see features of it. 
But I think I think that a lot of people don't believe um, it's serious or don't believe that it causes severe symptoms. Um, so often I'll have patients come to show me their previous surgery elsewhere and they say, oh, but the endo is all removed and they've got pain or no endometriosis. And I have a look. I always encourage people to bring their pictures with them. And I have a look and I think, gosh, you've got really terrible adenomyosis. Oh, and wow. they it's the first time they've ever heard of it. Um, so, you know, then that discussion happens. Okay. So would you say that the research of adenomyosis is pretty in its preliminary years is, yes is that kind of where yeah. we're at like we're behind the yes. we're behind endometriosis research in some point. correct yes mm. yeah mm. okay far out yeah i know and in your clinical experience do you see women with a higher percentage of endometriosis or do you find that it's the same with endometriosis and adenomyosis because you know what you're looking for? Yes, I think that's why I see it a lot. Um, I think patients self-select, so I get a lot of patients that see me because of the endometriosis. We know about 70% of people with endo will have adenomyosis. That's a huge percentage. Um, but there's there's also a unique uh, sort of group that have no endometriosis and have adenomyosis. And I think their scans will come back normal. They'll have surgery and people will just tell them it's all normal um, and there's nothing there. Um, so I see a lot of that. Okay. Yeah. So I think I'm a bit biased because it's a lot of what I do. Um, yeah. But I do think there's a lot more out there and we're just going to get better at identifying it. Yeah, yeah, most and definitely. I think that's part of creating awareness around it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And so, how do they differ, Dr. Harrison? How do they relate endometriosis and adenomyosis? Um, so they're both uh, the endometrial glands that's going uh, outside the cavity of the uterus and depositing where it's not originally meant to be. For okay. adenomyosis, that's in the muscle for endometriosis that's outside the uterus completely. Most Mm. of the time it's in the pelvis, but, you know, endo can, of course, go elsewhere. It can go into the chest cavity. It can go into the bones. It can go into other places. Um, Adenomyosis is when we're talking about the muscle of the uterus changes. Mm. They're both very inflammatory conditions. Mm. Um, So you get all the, the awful inflammatory symptoms, the bloating, the tiredness, all of that stuff with both. Um, And... Uh, there's better options surgically for endometriosis than mm. there is for adenomyosis. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully we see further research in adenomyosis. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that was amazing, Dr. Harris. Thank you so much. Oh, no, you're um, welcome, guys. Knowledge. Thank you. I've learned so much. I'm honestly a welcome. Oh, well, thank amazing. you. Amazing. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for helping so many women and their partners. Of course. No, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, um, yeah, we'll do it again. (laughs) I want to hear all about, I would love to have you guys tell me all about what you do and, um, you know, maybe maybe that's our next project. Tell me all about, yeah, that would be great. I'm sure all my patients would want to know too. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to organise it. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.